Good morning. Happy Easter. What a joy to be together today on a beautiful Easter Sunday. We're so glad you chose to worship with us today. You're going to have to indulge my uh, inner church historian here for a second. I want to do something that's kind of an old Christian tradition that dates back thousands of years based out of uh, Luke 24, which is on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, the minister says um, he's risen and the congregation responds, he's risen indeed. And so can we, can we just... Can we do that together? I want to do it. Is that cool? Can we do it? All right, you ready? Okay. He is risen. risen Amen. If you somehow got to this point and haven't uh, figured it out yet, it is Resurrection Sunday, or commonly on Easter Sunday. We're so glad you guys are here. Although we literally do this every Sunday when the church gathers, this is a day set aside specifically to reflect afresh on the celebration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I, I know like we know this piece, right? Like it's, it's kind of what makes Easter so strange, but also I think so beautiful, is this is the kind of thing the church sings about and proclaims about every time they gather. But today we just want to like see it with fresh eyes. We want to in, invite ourselves to once again come back to the reality of the cross, the reality of the finished work, and the reality of the empty tomb. And just be brought afresh to the beautiful truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. On Easter Sunday morning, Jesus, the crucified one, the one who gave up his spirit on Good Friday, the one who drank the full wrath of God for sin, the one who died, walked out of his grave with the vestiges of of death and sin eliminated from his person. On Easter Sunday, we remember that death could not hold Jesus, that he died and then he rose. For all of human history, ever since sin entered the earth, death has been the final word on any individual life. But the Bible teaches that on a particular Sunday a couple thousand years ago, it just didn't go down like that, which is wild. And it's amazing. And by the way, it is the linchpin of this entire thing we call Christianity. I mean, in a very real sense, right? Like, Jesus could have just been making it up, and it could all be fake, and he could have just died, and the whole thing would be pointless, right? You couldn't even call him a good moral teacher, because he claimed things like, I'm God, I'm the Messiah, Isaiah 53 is in reference to me, I'm going to die and raise in three days, and if he was lying about those things, he was just lying, right? But even if he was telling the truth, but all his ministry consisted of was his death for sin. If all he did was die to to forgive sin, like that is something and that's beautiful, but but we got to be honest for a second. That's not actually enough. Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians that if it's only for this life that we hope in Christ, if the work of Christ was, well, you know, he died, he died for us, but it's just, it's just for here and just for now, then we are to be pitied. But praise be to God, that's not all of it. Jesus didn't just die on the cross for the sins of humanity. He also rose again on the third day, defeating the curse, proving through his life, proving through lungs that were dead that now are breathing again, a heart that was still that is now beating again, blood that had congealed that was now flowing again, proving through that that his work on the cross was actually sufficient to do the work he set out to do. 
that the curse, which had the final say on every human life from Genesis 3 up to that point, didn't have enough power to keep him down. That the curse, that the reality of sin gave everything it had to Christ, and it was insufficient to keep him dead. Come on, church. If you have a Bible, turn over to John chapter 20 for me. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have ones under your seat. You're welcome to grab one. In fact, I would, we're really passionate about access to the Word of God here at Emmanuel. If you don't own a Bible, I would encourage you to just take that one home, unless you have normal eyesight and can't read print that small. In which case, talk to one of the pastors. We'll get you a nicer one. <laughs> That's how we punish you for forgetting your Bibles, make you squint like you got to read. <laughs> John chapter 20, starting in the first verse, we read this. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. That's how you can tell John did write this account. Stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen clothes lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen clothes, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in and saw and believed, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. This is it, church. This is why we're here, not just today, but it's why we're here. It's why Christianity is a thing. It's why Emmanuel Fellowship and every other church you've ever heard of exists is because of this. The resurrection matters. Jesus, guys, I need you to hear this piece. This is the central claim of all of Christianity. That Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be the Messiah, was as dead as dead could be. He didn't just die. This was not like he choked at like the buffet and turned a little blue and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus was publicly, brutally executed. His death was not gentle. The professional executioners certified his death. There was no question at the mutilated, mauled body. It was dead. But it didn't stay that way. That limp, depleted, broken body was laid in a tomb and left to rot because that's what you do in the cursed world within which we live. When someone dies... When the curse claims another life, you take what is left over, the body, and you put it somewhere so that it can rot and turn back to dirt. But not Jesus. But not him. Can we just state the obvious here? No one expected that. Because who would expect that, right? That's not how the world normally works. That's not what every aspect, right, of our experience of how life and humanity works tells us. Jesus was dead, but Sunday the tomb was empty. His body wasn't just stolen and put somewhere else to rot. No, the tomb was open 
because Jesus got up and walked out of it. His heart started beating and his lungs started breathing and his blood started flowing again. And the Savior who was dead was now alive. Our crucified Lord is part of who he is, who died and suffered on our behalf, is risen. He's alive. We worship the living God, the living God who died but lives. A contradiction, and yet, and yet, it's what the scripture teaches, and it is the hope of every single one of us. And by the way, by the way, that actually means something. That isn't like just an interesting and unique little aspect of human history. The resurrection of Jesus, this, this claim we just read about, this claim that Christianity makes, is a cosmic level claim. It's very big. I, I, I would say it this way. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Everything in reality for you and for me today, here and now. I know that's like a big claim. And if you're someone who's in this space who like, maybe you're just here because it's like, it's Eastern, like grandma wanted me to go to church and that's fine. And this is not really your deal. I know part of you is like, I don't know, man, that's a pretty big claim, right? Like that's pretty, but I'm gonna stand by that. If, if, if what we just read, if what the scripture claims about Christ is true, then that is a cosmic event. That's, that's really big. That, that is a fundamental change to the nature of reality. See, the brutal, the brutal suffering death of Christ, those wounds which accomplished the task on the cross to, to eat up, to absorb, to take the full wrath of God, the full punishment for sin, the full effect of the curse, which is death, which is suffering, which is all these things, that bought, that brought about, that birthed the amazing joy of the resurrection. The wounds of Christ gave birth to the resurrected joy of Jesus. Such is the kingdom of God. Such is the claim of Christianity, that the creator God of the universe, the one who made all things, the one who sustains all things, the one who, as Colossians 1 says, is pleased day by day, minute by minute, moment by moment, to tell the atoms that make up the molecules, that make up the cells, that make up this universe, to continue doing what they're doing. In him all things hold together. That creator God, the perfect, righteous, holy God, the one against whom sin is a rebellion, chose not to ignore sin, not to make light of it, not to be sentimental, like, it's good, it's good, don't worry about it, but to step into the middle of it, to condescend and enter in to the broken and sinful world, the world that he made perfect, that was now populated with suffering and hurt and injustice and illness. He chose to jump into the middle of the mess and then conquer it. In Christ... Because of his work, our sins are forgiven. And we are offered real life. He repairs what sin breaks. He completes what sin has broken. He fills in the gaps created by the curse. He gives peace where sin has left desolation. Amen? But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. What I'd like to actually do today is zone in on a little story that happens a few verses after what we just read. So we just read John 20, 1 through 10, and this tells the story of the resurrection morning, the first Easter morning, early before the sunrise, right? You know, Mary goes, Mary and actually several Marys, go to the tomb to pay homage 
to Christ, to remember him, expecting to find a dead, rotting body and wanting to do one final act of honor and love to someone who they really cared about. And instead, they find an empty tomb. And they kind of freak out, right? I want us to pick up and read about, 19, or about 10 verses later in verse 19. This is the evening of the first Easter. That was like sunrise, this is dinner time. It says this in verse 19. When it was evening of the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven of them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And this is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, church. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for entering into our mess, for entering into my mess. Thank you, Lord, for responding to my selfishness with selflessness. Thank you for responding to my anger with gentleness, to my cruelty with kindness. Thank you, Lord, for entering into this world and being everything that I, that we could not be, offering the love and the sacrifice we need to actually be completed, to actually find peace. Jesus, I just ask this morning for all of us, whether we've been in church our whole lives, whether we haven't, that you would just speak to us afresh this morning. Give us a picture of who you are. Give us an image of your affection for us and what that means in our life in this world. Let us leave here, Lord, just encouraged in you. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So I want to look over this passage. This little short little story happens a couple hours later and just see what we can see about the world-changing, sin-forgiving, peace-bringing work of Jesus for us today. So, remember, we're picking up literal hours after the resurrection, right? Like, they go to the tomb, it's empty. Their first thought is, someone stole his body. Which, by the way, is the normal reaction, right? Like, their, their first thought is not, you know, I bet he resurrected, because you don't think that, because that's not how the world works. And so when the Marys go and tell the apostles, hey, the tomb is empty, what they tell him is someone stole his body, which makes sense. Jesus was arrested as a political dissenter. There were plenty of people who would love to steal his body and desecrate it publicly as a statement about what happens when you challenge Rome. And so they run to the tomb and they find it empty. And, not, and, and when they believe, it's not this belief of, oh, awesome, Jesus resurrected. It's this belief of, oh, it really is empty. It really is getting worse, right? And they go back and they hide. Now, there's this really interesting piece at that point where Mary Magdalene is distraught and she's sorrowful and Christ appears to her and just kind of does this like, what's up? Which I love, this is, this is terrible because I might be projecting onto Christ when I do this. But I love the way she interacts with people on the first Easter Sunday. There really is this kind of like, hey. And you just like, I just, I wish I could see the surprise on people's faces. Christ keeps appearing to them and chatting with them and being like, yeah, not dead. Isn't that wild? Uh, but <laughs> he hangs out with Mary and tells, tells her who he is. And she runs back and tells the apostles. And their response is, 
yeah, no, no, that's probably not what's happening. Which, you know, man, listen, we can get real judgy real quick about this group of guys telling Mary, like, you're crazy, like, go in the other room and, I don't know, make breakfast or something. Because they probably are being a little, you know, but let's be honest, we all would have some kind of similar reaction, right? Imagine you were at a funeral on Friday, and then on Sunday morning, a mutual friend comes up to you and goes, I know this is wild, but you know I was hanging out with our buddy this morning? He's like, just not dead. I don't know. Like, we saw him, we had brunch. It was wild. You wouldn't assume they were telling the truth. There would be, you go, I think grief has driven you insane. Like, let's go sit down and like help you calm down. That's not what's happening. Because that's not how the world works, right? So when, when Mary comes proclaiming the good news of the resurrection, the response of the apostles, the ones who followed Christ for his whole ministry, is not joy, it's not worship, it's fear. They hide. They lock the doors. This, this weekend has gone from bad to worse to worse. Their assumption now is, is not like, man, how do we figure out where resurrected Jesus is going to hang out? Most likely, their thought process at this point is, how do we get out of Jerusalem without being arrested and killed? How do we get through the gates of the city without being stopped by temple guards or Roman guards since we hung out in public with the guy they just crucified for the last week? How do we get out of this? So they're hiding. The doors are locked. They're not celebrating the resurrection. They're living into their fear. And that's when Jesus shows up. And I love this scene. It's, I mean, right, like death could not hold Christ. So it's no surprise that like deadbolts aren't really that big of a challenge for him either, right? But the doors are locked and Jesus is there and he just greets the apostles, peace be with you, which, which is the standard greeting for adult Jewish folk in this day. This is the equivalent of Jesus walking in the room and being like, what's up, my dudes? He just walks in and says, hey, and again, I could just come back to, man, I wish I could see that moment. (laughs) Not just because of the shock of like, the doors are locked, how is someone in here? But then when they like look and it's Jesus and he's like, yeah, I'm not dead, check this out. Like I'm here again. Like I just, I love that scene. I love that Jesus is like, it seems like he really is like he's enjoying his victory, right? He's coming to his friends and being like, I'm alive. I love it. But the scene's actually kind of weird. So he comes in and he says, peace be with you, the standard greeting. And then he shows them his wounds, like check this out. And then he greets them again. Peace be with you. And then he you know, gives his commission thing. That just seems kind of strange, right? Like, come in, hey, what's up? Check it out. Hey, what's up? That just, it seems strange. But I tell you guys, I think there's actually something in this for us. And for us to dig into it, we got to take a few minutes. You're going to have to just kind of forgive me this. Take a few minutes and talk about the history of this word peace. Now, we read this word in the greeting in English as peace. And that has kind of some loaded meanings in it for us. For most Western English speakers, peace is kind of understood definitionally as, as like a negative word, meaning we, we understand peace as the absence of conflict, right? There are times of war and times of peace. In times of war, there's war going on. In times of peace, there's not war going on, right? But the Greek word that we're reading in English as peace is this word irene. 
And it is a little more of a positive meaning. It's less about the absence of conflict. And in the Roman understanding, irony was more about the presence of organization, the presence of orderliness, which is a very Roman way to think about the world, right? It's kind of how that word was used within the Roman Empire. But the Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, took that word and just infused it with a whole bunch of extra meaning. And the reason for that is because they used it essentially as a Greek translation of the Hebrew word shalom. Now, if you've spent more than like two minutes in church world, you've heard this word shalom before because it's deeply entwined in Jewish and Christian theology. And so we have to take a couple minutes and talk about this word shalom. Again, it's a word for peace that really has a much more positive meaning. But rather than the Roman usage, it's very much about orderliness. And this is a little bit of a nuance, but follow me with this. I promise this will pay off for us. This word shalom really is about the presence of completeness. The presence of something being fully as it's supposed to be. Imagine, if you will, a brick wall. And through a series of events, an earthquake, a cannon blast, sun, acid rain, lack of maintenance, that wall begins to fall into disrepair. Bricks fall out, the mortar cracks, it's leaning over. That wall is full of gaps and holes and it is lacking shalom. So to bring peace, to bring shalom to that wall would be to restore it to completeness to put the bricks back where they go, to do a whole bunch of tuck-pointing work, and then to go back and seal the mortar and to get that thing plumb and perfect. That would be to bring it to its shalom, its completeness. Now, at this point, you're, hopefully at least some of you are like, why are we talking about this word so much? But the reason is, this was deeply entwined in the Jewish worldview and in Jewish theology. Going back to the creation narrative, right? Like, God created everything perfect. He created it complete and whole as he desired it to be. But it's the presence of sin, it's the curse that entered into the world in Genesis 3 that broke that creation, that ruined that creation. And over the course of years and years and generations, as every single human born chooses sin over and over and over, and sin is worked through our person, is in our bones from birth, the creation is further and further and further and further ruined to the point that we can't even understand God's creation outside the context of the curse that's ruined it. We can't think of the world without thinking about it through the lens of what the Bible describes as the curse. We can't think about the world apart from death, apart from suffering, apart from selfishness, apart from injustice. Those are part and parcel what the creation does. But that is not how God designed it to be. That is a creation that is actually full of gaps. That is actually not how it's supposed to be. And what you actually see in the biblical narrative is that from the minute sin enters the world, going all the way back to Genesis 3, when God himself was describing what sin would do to his perfect good creation, he immediately began to promise that he would fix what sin had broken. In fact, you can look at the Old Testament narrative through the lens of the promises of God. I will restore what sin has broken. I will bring back completeness. I will fix what the curse has broken in this world. 
And this word shalom gets, gets even more entwined in the Jewish theology later in the Jewish identity when the kingdom of Israel was utterly destroyed, honestly, like as a punishment for their sin, right? Like God's justice being put on these people and the prophets began to minister to them and to speak about a time of restoration. And they really infused this idea of shalom and completeness into the prophetic ministry to say, don't forget, God has promised that he will fix what sin is broken and Someday, God will come and he will restore. He will fill in the gaps. He will fix what is broken. He will build that wall back up and bring it to completeness. And as they began to talk about the messianic ministry, right, this, this expected Messiah who would, who would fix what is broken, they described him in terms of this shalom ministry. The Messiah will be known as the prince of peace. He is the king of completeness, Right? And this became so entwined in the theology and the worldview that it literally became the greeting. You would say, peace be with you, which is a shorthand. It's a way of saying shalom to you, completeness, God's restoration to you. It's a shorthand of Jewish people drawing each other back to the promise of God to restore what sin had broken. And that brings us back to Jesus, back to this room locked on the evening of Easter Sunday. And Jesus shows up and he says, peace be with you. And all of that, all of that history, all of that weight, all of those promises is loaded into his words. And yet, they don't hear any of it. Because of course they don't. It's a greeting. You don't think about greetings. Like, when was the last time someone said, hey, what's up? And your immediate thought was, I wonder what the history of that phrase is. You don't think that way. Like, high means high, right? So Christ comes in the room and says, peace be with you. And like, for us as the readers, we're like, ooh, I just got like those goosebumps from all the shalom in the room. But the guys in the room are like, what? Jesus, what are you doing here? And so what does Christ do? He immediately goes and shows them his wounds. He draws them back to his work on the cross. And there's a reason for this. He's saying, listen, you didn't make up the last week. (laughs) It really happened. I really did die. You really did abandon me, by the way. And I really was betrayed. And I really was, I really did suffer horrifically. And I really did die. And I really was buried. You didn't make that part up. But I'm alive again. And I'm alive again because it worked. Because that, that shalom that God has been promising that restoration, that completeness that he's been saying that he will bring since Genesis 3 is here. And so he shows them the wound. He grounds them in his accomplished work on the cross. And then he greets them again. I say it again. Peace be with you. I say it again. God restore you. I say it again. Shalom is here. And then you see that room kind of go, oh, oh, oh. Oh, he means this. Because, beloved, this is actually the truth of the gospel. He is our crucified Lord. This is part of his identity now. The crucifixion, the the wounds of the cross are a part of our eternal Lord's experience. He bears the wounds, even in his resurrection, even in perfection, because God does not minimize sin in his solution for sin. 
the reality, the weight of the curse is on full display in the gospel of Jesus. He bears the wounds of the cross. He is our crucified Lord, but he is our risen Lord. The curse gave him all it had, and it wasn't enough. He came back to life. It couldn't hold him. It wasn't strong enough to keep him because his work was sufficient. Because the God of the universe, the shalom promising God, the God who made everything, the God who in his grace has sustained reality, even when we rebel against him, he entered into the broken sinful world full of its selfishness, full of its injustice, full of its wars, full of its illness, full of all the things that break and mess up the beautiful and perfect creation. And he said, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to pay the price for sin and I'm going to make a way from this mess to perfected life forever. And it worked. The the accomplished work of Christ on the cross is actually sufficient. It actually rebuilds that wall. It actually puts the bricks back and fills the gaps and does the tuck pointing and seals it and actually makes it work. Real shalom. Real restoration, real completeness, no gaps left in creation. This is what Christ accomplished. And it is the wounds of Christ. It is the sacrifice of Christ that accomplished this work, that paid for it. So Christ shows them his wounds and he says it again, peace be with you. Because the shalom of God has actually arrived in our real world, here and now. Peace be with you is something Jesus can actually say with confidence and with authority because he has genuinely brought peace. He brings the shalom of Christ with him. You see it click. Oh, he means this. (laughs) He fills our gaps. He makes us whole. He makes this whole thing what it's supposed to be. What a gospel. What a gospel. What a God we serve. What a thing to celebrate. That our God is not content to see his beloved creation wither and rot and die. He's not content to see his beloved creation corrupted by selfishness and evil, doing violence and hurt and awful things against him. He's not content with the reality of the curse. So he jumped into the middle of the mess and he fixed it. He paid the price. And he resurrected, and that resurrection, beloved, is a guarantee. It's a guarantee. Death couldn't hold Christ. So if you're with him, can't hold you either. We may see the vestiges of the curse around us right now, but the promise of the resurrected Christ is if you're with me, you get the same deal. (laughs) Come on, church. What a gospel. What a God we worship. He is worthy of celebration of song, of joy, of worship, of prayer. But here's the amazing thing. Amanda, if you guys want to come up. It doesn't end there. He doesn't stop. It doesn't stop in that moment where Christ accomplished his work and resurrected and and bought shalom for those people. It didn't stop there. No. Jesus goes into this, this kind of awkward section of the text. You guys know this. He kind of gives this commission to them, right? Like he breathes on them. There's this tactile, like, you know, I'm raised. My spirit is with you. Go in my authority. But then there's this kind of awkwardly worded sentence at the end where he's kind of like, 
you know, go and like whoever you preach forgiveness to, they're forgiven. If you don't preach, they're not forgiven. And if you kind of read it on the surface, there's this part of you that kind of goes, wait a minute. Is he saying that like we are the ones who go and like forgive people or not forgive people? That's kind of how it sounds. Doesn't that kind of defeat the purpose of the whole like he did it, he accomplished it, it's finished. Like if we're out there doing it. Yeah, yeah, that's not how it works. It's an awkwardly worded sentence in English. And the reason is because it's an awkwardly worded sentence. Uh, and it just, just doesn't kind of come through very well. If you read it a little more, a little like closer to how it's literally written, it would come out like a little bit like, those who've been forgiven, you proclaim their forgiveness to. Which is a little, a little important nuance there. And the reason is this. Christ, in his resurrection, comes in the room. Peace be with you. And then he shows them exactly why. Because I did it. Because it worked. You actually have shalom. You actually have peace. And you see the room. You can feel the room light up as they're with Christ. And it begins to click. The Messiah is here. Shalom is here. He's restored what's broken. And then Christ immediately goes, all right, cool. Now go. Go and proclaim that. Go and proclaim that. Go and tell hurt, broken, dark, suffering hearts of this world the thing they long to hear, which is your sins are forgiven. Go and tell the world that is being ravaged by the effects of the curse the thing it longs to hear. Messiah is here. His work is sufficient. It worked. Shalom is here. Sins can be forgiven. Go. Go and tell people that. And, and, and guys, here's the thing. We can. We can do that. We can, we can commit ourselves to that. We can participate in that because there's enough grace to go around. There's enough. Like his, his work is actually sufficient. Not just for the people in that room, but for every, every single person who wants forgiveness, there's enough forgiveness. Every single person who wants shalom, there's enough shalom. So, the redeemed of Jesus get to declare to the world that the peace of Jesus has come. Death is defeated. Sins are forgiven. Shalom is here. And why? Why do we get to declare that? Because he is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed.